Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. You can follow along in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane or desecrate the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you? who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value than is a man, is a man than a sheep. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, stretch out your hand. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him or murder him. Now the events that we see here before us in Matthew 12 is really a pivotal point. It's a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, It's a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to see how the rejection, the outright open rejection of Christ is unveiled before us in this, this chapter, chapter 12. Now, in the early days of Jesus' ministry, as you recall, he won a wide base of acceptance. He was doing miracles for people. He was eating with the common folks. People enjoyed being with him. There was crowds following him. He was doing works of mercy. He was a very popular preacher. People came from all over to hear him when he spoke. But as his ministry progressed... What we see is the Jewish establishment of Jesus' day, the religious folks of Jesus' day, religious leaders, were always watching the ministry of Christ. And what they began to see was incompatible with what they taught, with what they believed, with their own position and their own religious teachings. It was incompatible. What they saw Jesus doing and also what they heard him teaching. And you see here in the first 21 verses of Matthew chapter 12, just the open rejection of Christ. That's what we're going to see. And then in the latter half of chapter 12, it turns that rejection turns into blasphemy. Now this isn't the first time even his predecessor, John the Baptist, encountered this kind of resistance. We saw in Matthew chapter 3 um, when he 
turned to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he called them a generation of vipers. Not necessarily terms of endearment there. And he warned them of the wrath to come. And then we saw in Matthew chapter 5, when the Lord confronted them, the religious establishment, and he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter my kingdom. And then he proceeds in chapters 5 through 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, basically to take apart what they believe to be their religious beliefs. He was always saying, Have you, you've, you've heard this, but I'm going to tell you this. And then finally in chapter 9, verse 3, we begin to see this movement even faster and, and more severe when they began to accuse him of blasphemy. They began to say, oh, you're, you know, you're a, a, a wine-bibber and you're a glutton. You spend time with tax collectors and sinners. He says that in verse 11. And then in verse 34, at the end of the chapter, uh, he basically, they basically called Jesus demon-possessed. So we've been kind of following, we've been tracking the responses of these people to this overwhelming evidence that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that Matthew is giving us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we saw how it moved from doubt in the life of John the Baptist. And then next we looked at the criticism of the religious people in Jesus' day. We looked at the indifference. And now we come to the open rejection of Christ. And ultimately, to blasphemy itself. I mean, can you imagine Jesus Christ being in their midst? And they still remained indifferent. They still remained critical. They still doubted. And now we see with this open rejection, they don't only have those things, but they're also filled with fury. They're filled with rage. They're really ticked off. And you come to that kind of apex in this chapter here in verse 14 when it says the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy or kill him. That's how mad they were. I mean, you have to be pretty mad. You know, I mean, if we get in an argument or something, you know, and I, and I come back to your house and say, okay, I got a gun and I'm going to kill you, you. You know I'm really mad. I mean, that would just be off the wall. Sometimes you're driving on the freeway and you experience some road rage, okay? People get upset. People do crazy things when they're upset. They're controlled by their anger. And so this chapter really has for us here a milestone. One commentator says, it's the storm that ultimately leads to Calvary's cross. And it's gathering on the horizon. If you've ever been down south and you see the storm clouds coming, you know you better get in and, and button down the hatches because the rain's coming. You can see it coming. It just moves right across the, the flatland. It's amazing. All of this problem here in Matthew chapter 12 deals with one thing. It all focuses on one thing, a legalistic view of the Sabbath. A legalistic view of the Sabbath. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, how would you define legalism? We could probably go around the room and we could probably come up with 10 or 15 different definitions of legalism. Because legalism is encountered by people all the time and sometimes it means different to different, it experiences things differently to different people. And so, how do you define legalism? Well, Webster defines it this way, a strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. And then it adds this, the stressing of the letter of the law rather than its spirit. 
See, there's a difference between being legalistic and being obedient. Being legalistic means that you're keeping the law in order to earn your salvation. Being obedient is simply keeping the law because we are saved. You see the difference? Big difference. Well, here's a couple of verses that might describe a legalistic viewpoint. In Mark chapter 7, verse 7, it says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, legalism really takes an opinion. It takes an opinion and it makes it an obligatory practice. And what it does is it bases it on tradition. It bases it on religious belief, not on the Word of God. Also over in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, it says, The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. See, with legalism, there's always a disconnect between someone's practice and their heart. There's always a disconnect there. And so these verses really describe the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus taught us throughout the scriptures. We've seen this over and over again. He taught that people weren't um, saved by mere capitulation to a bunch of rules. He clearly taught that. They couldn't be saved by keeping some kind of a, a rule book. And not only that, but it didn't make them holy. It didn't make them righteous. True righteousness had to come where? From the heart. And only God could give that there. Only God could create that transaction in the heart. So the Sabbath was really the cornerstone of Jesus's, uh, of the Jews' religious uh, thought and practice. And so what he was doing, he really, he violated here in Matthew chapter 12, the rabbinic traditions concerning the Sabbath. In other words, he looked at their religious practices and he said, here's what I think of your religious practices. And when he violated that, they totally lost it. They just became unglued. He was really striking a blow, you might say, right into the heart of their pious religious system because everything that they practiced and believed in Judaism revolves around the Sabbath. Well, what do we mean by the Sabbath? The English word Sabbath and the Greek word sabbaton and even the Hebrew word Shabbat, they all mean the same thing. They're just transliterations from the Hebrew. And it means a ceasing or a rest, an inactivity. See, we see, we begin to understand why Jesus introduced the Sabbath here in chapter 12. At this point. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew recorded this deal having to do with the Sabbath. 
Remember what we looked at last week. We looked at how Jesus offers rest to all who will come to him, right? And we see today, and we're going to see as we get into this, that there's absolutely no rest at all offered by the Pharisees in this mere religious observance of their tradition, of their oral law. Well, this word Sabbath appears 137 times in the Bible. 77 times it's in the Old Testament. 60 times it's in the New Testament. 50 times of those 60 times it's in the Gospels. So it's kind of an important subject. Even in this chapter 12, if you go through and you count, look for the word Sabbath, you're going to find it seven times. Just in this one chapter alone. That's why, you, that's why I said this is kind of the focus of this whole chapter. Now, in the Torah, what we know is the Torah, or the Law of Moses, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we learn certain things about what God's Word has to say about Sabbath law. Now, this is what God says. This is not what the Jews said. This is what God says. First of all, in Exodus 20, verse 10, we see that all daily work must cease by everyone. We weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. And God laid out that example for us when he created the earth in six days, and then what? On the seventh day, he what? He rested. He was laying a principle down there. Also, secondly, those who profane or desecrate the Sabbath must die. (laughs) Pretty serious. I mean, you know, when, when the death penalty is involved, that's a pretty serious thing. Thirdly, plowing and harvesting must cease. Not not allowed to do that at all. And then fourthly, no fire may be kindled in the homes. You can't start a fire. That's what the Word of God said. And then in Nehemiah and Jeremiah, a little later on in Scripture, there were some additional requirements that were added. And the Jews were not allowed to carry certain goods to and fro into the community because they didn't want them selling and buying on the Sabbath. So the Word of God as well adds some restrictions on that. Well, what were they allowed to do on the Sabbath? What were the legal activities according to God's word? Now, remember, we're talking about God's word. First of all, they were allowed to have military campaigns. They were allowed to have marriage feasts, dedication feasts. They were allowed to visit a man of God. They were allowed to change the temple guards. They were allowed to prepare the showbread, which was in the temple. They were allowed to offer sacrifices. The duties of the priests and the Levites were allowed to be carried out. And they allowed for the opening of the eastern gate. This is what God's word said. Okay. This is not what the the, the Jews came up with. This is what God's word said. Remember when we were going through Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Constantly Jesus. What was he saying? He was constantly saying you have heard. Right. You have heard it said. You have heard it taught. But here's what I'm going to tell you. See what happened was the Jews added a tremendous amount of minutia to God's original intention regarding the Sabbath. Somewhere between the Old Testament and the time of Jesus, the the prohibitions regarding the Sabbath just skyrocketed. And they skyrocketed to the point where they had rules about whether you could tie or untie a knot. We're going to look at some of the the regulations and stuff they had, and you're just going to laugh. You're just going to think, this is ridiculous. But what was the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, it involved three basic principles. Physical refreshment, 
national remembrance, and spiritual redemption. Now, I want to tell you that a lot of Jews undoubtedly kept the Sabbath with the right spirit. Just as today we have Christians who keep maybe a strict observance of the Lord's Day, and they do it out of love, they do it out of a desire to set at least one day wholly apart onto God for spiritual matters. And you say, well, what was the problem here then? See, the problem was is that the Pharisees had added man's regulation to God's law. They looked at God's law and said, you know, that's not good enough. We've got to add some stuff to this. I mean, that's just, you know, basic to our nature, I think. Can't leave good enough alone. And so they reduced this right of observance of the Sabbath to the most horrible, a terrible form of legalism and, and burden on the people. Here are some examples. In, in Jesus' day, they actually had rules that could be dangerous if you kept them on the Sabbath. One of those rules was actually established, and it was actually kept. The, the historical book of Maccabees records an instance when um, some of a group of Jews came under attack, a military attack on the Sabbath day by a Greek army led by... An, A certain leader, Antiochus Epiphanes. And so they rose up against them in battle, and the Jews believed that, well, you know what, we can't, it's a Sabbath, it's a Sabbath. The Pharisees say, we can't do anything on the Sabbath, we can't lift anything, we can't do anything. Okay, well, here we are. And this army literally came in and slaughtered their wives, their children, the men, the cattle, to the number of 2,000 people. And they didn't do anything to stop them. Now remember, one of the things that God allowed for on the Sabbath was what? A military campaign. He allowed for that. But you can see how when man gets a hold of God's word and they want to kind of change it and they want to make it into something that meets their need, how things can just get go awry very, very quickly. One section of the Talmud, kind of the, the compilation of Jewish tradition, has 24 chapters dealing with Sabbath law. That's all it deals with, 24 chapters. If you try to read it, you just fall asleep. It's ridiculous. Some of it's kind of comical, but it's just incredibly burdensome. The Pharisees put this heavy burden on the people. A couple areas that we see. The law said that one was not to travel on the Sabbath. That's what it said. Just that's simply, you know, Exodus 16, 29. That's what it says. Well, fair enough. The Pharisees looked at that and said, well, but wait a minute. What constitutes traveling? What does it mean by that? And so as an answer to that question, they said, well, we've got to come up with a rule now. So we came up with a rule called the Sabbath day journey rule. And you were only allowed to go 1,000 yards on the Sabbath. No more. A man could walk that far on the Sabbath. But if he went further than a thousand yards, it was considered sin. You were desecrating the Sabbath. Now, that's not in God's word. That's what they came up with. Listen to this. But if a rope was tied across the end of the street, 
the whole street technically became one dwelling place. And in that case, a person could walk 1,000 yards beyond the rope. Or, before the Sabbath started, if you went out into the wilderness and hit a a rice cake out there, or, or some kind of food, you put it out there before the Sabbath, and you went back home, you were allowed to travel. It didn't matter how far it was. You were allowed to travel as far as that food was, stop where that food was, and eat that food, because then that place became your dwelling place. Then you could go a thousand yards beyond that. Crazy. I mean, you could see if you were pretty ingenious, you could basically go anywhere you wanted to. If a rope were placed across an adjoining street to your house or an alley, the building on the other side, as well as the alley, could be considered part of your house. So, you weren't allowed to travel on the Sabbath, but... Okay, we're going to kind of make all these changes. The law also forbade you to carry a load in Jeremiah 17. And the intention was that, you know, they didn't want people going to the market, carrying all their their wares to market and selling them on the Sabbath. This was a day of rest. It was supposed to be a day of, you know, just kind of relaxing and focusing on God. And that's what God's original intent was. Well, the Pharisees looked at that. Well, what does he mean by carrying a load? Was a load a piece of clothing? Could a jacket be considered a load? Well, according to them, yes, if you weren't wearing it. So if you had a jacket on a table and you had to take it from the kitchen to the living room, the only way you could do it without desecrating the Sabbath was to go over, put that jacket on your person, walk over to the living room, and then take it back off. Then you weren't carrying a load. If you actually just picked the jacket up and moved it, Without wearing it, you were carrying a load. I mean, it's comical, the minutia they get into. Certain objects could be lifted up and put down only from certain places. And, I mean, there's pages and pages describing this stuff. We don't have time to go into it all this morning. Under the Sabbath regulation, a Jew couldn't carry anything heavier than a dried fig. Kind of weird. I lived in India, and we had dried dates and figs down there. And, you know, I mean, I guess it would depend on the fig. You got a big fig or a little fig? I don't know. I wonder if they included fig newtons in that. I don't know. But listen to this. If the object weighed half the amount of a dried fig, well, you were allowed to carry it twice. Really, really silly stuff. You could throw an object up in the air and catch it with the same hand, but if you caught it with the other hand, that was wrong. They also forbid working on the Sabbath. And the logic worked this way. And this is just unreal, but this is what they believed. If you were out walking within your thousand-yard parameter around your house, and you just happen to have to spit. And you spit, depending on where that spit landed, would depend on whether or not you were working on the Sabbath. Say, what do you mean? Well, if the spit landed in the dirt and the dust, and it made a slight indentation, well, technically you were kind of creating a furrow, and you were plowing. So if your spit landed in the dirt... You desecrated the Sabbath. If it landed on a rock, you were okay. You didn't do any work. 
I mean, who comes up with this stuff? I mean, it is really, really crazy. They also believe that you couldn't light or extinguish a fire. You could use the fire that's already lit within certain parameters, but you weren't allowed to put it out. You weren't allowed to light a fire. Even today, some Orthodox Jews use timers in their houses to turn on the lights because they don't technically have, they don't want to do it on the Sabbath, so they actually set up a whole timer system so before the Sabbath begins, the lights go on. Or they'd have to spend the night in the dark. Because physically, they're unable. They'll break the Sabbath if they go over and turn that switch and that light, they consider that a fire. I mean, it's nuts. I don't like this one at all. Baths could not be taken on the Sabbath. You want to know why? Because they were afraid maybe some water would spill out of the basin and accidentally wash the floor and be considered work. (laughs) Chairs couldn't be moved because by dragging them across the dirt, you'd make a furrow. Listen to this, ladies. You were not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. And the reason was because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. I'm not lying. This is true. This is what they believed. You were only allowed to carry enough ink to write two letters. Not, not letters letters. I mean letters of the alphabet. You weren't allowed to write any more than two letters. False teeth. I didn't know they had false teeth, but... False teeth couldn't be worn because it exceeded the weight limit for burdens. (laughs) I mean, there's 39 categories, all this stuff. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. And it's interesting that of the 39 categories of work that was prohibited on the Sabbath, reaping was one of them, which became the chief contention here in Matthew chapter 12. They also had eating restrictions. Um, really detailed, really extensive eating restrictions. Um, You couldn't eat anything larger than an olive. Listen to this. But if you took a bite out of an olive and it was rotten and you spit it out, well, too bad. (laughs) That counts. (laughs) I guess depending on where you spit, you know, that's the other problem. you, You know, you just go on with this and it's on and on and on and on. If by chance you were reaching for an apple and the Sabbath fell on you, while you were reaching for the apple, you were not allowed to draw it back and eat it. You had to drop it. Because by drawing back and eating it, you would be carrying a load in there. You would desecrate the Sabbath. Tailors, people who sewed clothes, were not allowed to carry a needle lest they be tempted to sew somebody's garment on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to buy or sell. Um, Clothing couldn't be dyed or washed. Um, You couldn't dispatch a letter communication so there's no postal service even by the hand of a Gentile you couldn't give it to a Gentile and say hey go go give this to somebody you couldn't do that and all these hair splitting regulations I mean can you imagine how this weighed down the people a Jew could not even pull off even a handful of grain to eat on the Sabbath which became the issue here unless he were starving (laughs) And then who's going to decide whether or not he's starving? One person may say, well, yeah, he's starving. I don't think he can make it to the next day. And the other guy may say, ah, nah, he's got a couple days yet. Let him starve. I mean, that's, that's how they looked at these things. To determine how much food, how much medicine you weren't allowed to 
if somebody was sick, you weren't allowed to minister to them so that they could get better. You could just maintain them. But if you actually gave them medicine that healed them, then that was considered work and you weren't allowed to do that. So the burden was extensive here. And the list goes on and on and on. And you know what, beloved? The Sabbath for these poor people was anything but a time of rest. That's what God originally intended. But it became this time of oppressive frustration and anxiety. I mean, can you imagine wondering if you're going to spit somewhere and that's going to desecrate or, or if you pick something up? I mean, nobody likes bureaucracy. How many of you love bureaucracy? I mean, we hate bureaucracy when it comes to our governments, right? We don't like that. It's waste. Can you imagine what it's like to be under a religious bureaucracy? And people were sick to death of it. And it, basically this system had been imposed on them by their worldly, legalistic, religious leaders. See, now doesn't it make sense back in chapter 11 that we just looked at in verse 28 when Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye who are what? Weary and heavy laden. See, that doesn't mean they had a tough week at work. <laughs> that means they're dealing with this minutia on a weekly basis. There's a large gulf between what it means to be legalistic and what it means to be obedient. Someone who is legalistic, somehow they think by doing something, by keeping the law, they're earning their salvation. Someone who's obedient is basically doing what God says in his law because they're saved. They want to please God. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is not the enemy here. We need the law to show us our sin. If it wasn't for the law, we wouldn't know we were sinners. We need the law to direct us into righteousness. We need the commands of Christ, which are laid out throughout Scripture, to further our sanctification and our holiness. Hebrews says, without those things, in twelve fourteen, we won't see the Lord. So salvation does not depend on keeping the law, but rather our salvation is seen in us when we keep the law. When we do what's right in God's eyes. Well, let me give you a little bit of background here on the Sabbath itself. Because you're probably thinking, is he talking about Sunday? Is he talking about Saturday? Well, in your little notes there, you have a little grid. And it's up there on the screen too. But the Sabbath day was and always will be the seventh day of the week. Do you understand that? The Sabbath day is always Saturday. God rested, it said, on the seventh day in Genesis 2-2. After six days of creation, God rested. Now, if you go back and you look into Genesis, you notice that God did not command his followers at that time to keep the Sabbath. He didn't command them to do that. He just laid it out there as a principle. Out of every seven days, one of them was to be committed to rest. The nation of Israel was commanded to keep the Sabbath. But when the Ten Commandments were given in in Exodus 20, that's when the commandment came. It wasn't in Genesis when he laid down the principle. So the law of the Sabbath was different from the other nine commandments. The law of the Sabbath was a ceremonial law. It wasn't a moral law. I mean, the only reason that it was wrong to work on the Sabbath was because God said so. That's the only reason. The other commandments had to do with something that's intrinsically wrong. Morally wrong. 
You don't commit adultery. You don't lie. You don't steal. You don't use God's name in vain. The law of the Sabbath was the only one that was a ceremonial law. And by the way, it's the only law of God's Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament. It's not repeated. The other ones are. All nine of them. They're repeated in the New Testament. Not as law, but as instructions for Christians to live under grace. The only commandment Christians are never told to keep was the law of the Sabbath. Interesting. In Paul, in in Colossians 2.16, he brings up that matter. Talking about Sabbath days and all that stuff. A Christian cannot be condemned for failing to keep the Sabbath. Now, remember what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Sabbath. What day is the Sabbath? Saturday. Right? So it's a distinctive day among Judaism. Well, Christianity has a distinctive day too. It's the first day of the week. Sunday. Stop and think about it. The Lord rose from the dead on Sunday. John 21. First day of the week. And he rose basically as a proof of redemption and all that had been completed and divinely approved. Also in John 2019, we see on the next two Lord's Days, the next two Sundays, he met with his disciples. He's laying down a pattern. The Holy Spirit was given on the first day of the week, Acts 2.1. The early disciples met on the first day of the week to break bread, to have communion, showing forth the Lord's death. It's the day that God appointed for Christians to come together and set aside the tithes and the offerings for the work of God. 1 Corinthians 16. So the Sabbath day is Saturday. The Lord's day is Sunday. Now look, the Sabbath day came at the end of a week of toil. Right? The Lord's day, the day that we come together as Christians, begins the week with the restful knowledge that the work of redemption has been completed. I mean, aren't you glad that you don't have to work for your salvation? I don't know about you, but I am very glad. The Sabbath day commemorated the first creation. That's when it happened. He created and then he rested. He established a day of rest, the Sabbath day. The Lord's day or Sunday is linked to a new creation. A Christian becoming a Christian. The Bible says that when you become a Christian, old things pass away. Behold what? All things become new. You're a new creation in Christ. The Sabbath day was a day of responsibility. It was something that had to be kept. The Lord's day is a day of privilege. We need to tell some people that. <laughs> that kind of drag themselves into church. Or can't make it to church. You know, it's a day of privilege for us to come together as believers and be able to worship the Lord together. The Sabbath day was a shadow of things to come. The Lord's day basically wrapped up everything of the substance of Christ and laid it out there for us. So the reason that we come together on the Lord's Day, we don't keep it as a means of earning our salvation. If you're not here on Sunday, that doesn't mean you lose your salvation. We don't keep the Lord's Day. We don't gather together as Christians because we think somehow we'll be holier if we're here. Nor do we come here on Sundays to celebrate as Christians because we're afraid God will punish us. None of those things are true. 
Now, with that being said, lest you walk out of here saying, hey, that's cool. I'm not coming to church anymore. You know, the 49ers are on this morning, 10 o'clock. They're probably, what, the second half right about now. wondering how they're doing, whatever. Well, the Bible also says in Hebrews, for Christians, that we should not forsake what? The assembling of ourselves together. And I'll have you to say that it doesn't just have the Lord's day in mind there. Some people say, well, that just means for Sundays. Oh, no. Whenever there's an assembly of believers, we should count it a privilege to be able to be part of that. And to be real honest, that doesn't mean if it's a a fellowship group, a care group, a work day, whatever. We should be chomping at the bit to say, man, I get to go spend some time with the saints of God. See, they set, we set our our devotion to the Lord apart on Sunday because of what he did for us. He gave himself for us. Because we're released from the routine of our weekly work week. We're released as a Christian from the secular affairs of life. We can set it aside Sunday as a special day of worship and consecration and service to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do it for 24 hours. Remember, God is not into, you know, all the minutiae that these other folks came up with. So it's not right. This statement is incorrect. I hear Christians say this all the time. Well, you know, the Sabbath was changed. Now it's the Lord's Day. No, it wasn't. The Sabbath was never changed. The Sabbath still is and always will be on Saturday. The Lord's Day signifies that new beginning, the resurrection of Christ. And as a faithful Jew, Jesus kept the Sabbath in spite of the accusations that we're going to see. And he kept it according to what God's word said originally, not all the minutiae that they added to it. That's why they got so ticked off. And as the Lord of the Sabbath, he comes along and his intention is to free the Sabbath from all these false rules, from all these false regulations that they established. And everything that kind of just became encrusted with all this this man-made garbage. And Jesus came along and said, no, (laughs) I'm not going to go along with this. Well, let's look at our text. That's all introduction. So I said, like I said, we're not going to get through this whole thing today. But we're going to at least get through a couple points here. But I think it's important for you to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the Sabbath. Well, look at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Well, let's look at the actions of the disciples of Jesus on the Sabbath day. That word there, those words at that time, kairos, it doesn't mean a specific hour. It doesn't mean a minute. This is, he's not done of a stop, watch out, going, okay, at that time, that's when it happened. No, he's talking about a general season. He's talking about a general period in the ministry of Christ, specifically the Galilean period. Here's Jesus moving through villages out of Galilee. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And it says, at that time, well, at the time of his Galilean ministry, you could fill in there. 
It says Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Well, right there we have a problem. Remember one of the rules? You weren't allowed to what? Travel on the Sabbath. Well, here's Jesus and his disciples traveling on the Sabbath according to the Pharisees' rules. So immediately, they're in violation of all their man-made stuff. He and his disciples were moving along because God's word didn't say how far you could go, what constituted traveling. It didn't have the thousand-yard rule. Only the Pharisees had that. So that was an illegitimate rule in the eyes of Jesus. So he just said, hey, I'll fix you. Come on, we're going to do some traveling. And he wanted to show them that that was not valid. What's interesting, in verse 2 it says, and when the Pharisees saw it, well, this must mean that somehow the Pharisees are tracking Jesus and his disciples, right? So, I mean, follow me on this. this doesn't, it's not rocket science. If Jesus and his disciples were considered to be traveling, and the Pharisees were following them, well, then maybe they were traveling too. Maybe they were breaking their own man-made rules. Literally, it says there, through the fields that are sown, through grain fields. Some Bibles may say cornfields, but there were most likely wheat or barley fields. And the grain, when it would ripen, which obviously that's the time of the season this was in verse 1, because they picked it and they ate it. Um, they're in the, the, the Galilee there, the Jordan Valley, probably sets this time frame around April. That's when things ripen over there. So the harvest must have been very near for them to be able to pluck this stuff and eat it. Now remember, these are the fields everywhere. There's not roads. You know, they don't have freeways. They don't have all that kind of stuff. They just have paths. And these paths kind of meander through the different fields and stuff. And if you've ever um, been on a farm or whatever, I remember back um, in Pennsylvania around this time of the year, actually, before Halloween, um, before I was a believer, when I was in uh, elementary and even probably in high school, we would go over to the corn fields. And it was field corn. It wasn't sweet corn which is the hard kind, and we'd go down and, and we'd take paper bags from the grocery store and we'd fill our bags up with just ears of corn. You say, well, why did you do that? For decoration? No. We had a more devious plan. We would take these bags home and we'd all sit around in a big circle and we'd shuck the corn. You know, get all the corn off the cobs. And we'd chuck the cobs out. Then we would take this corn that was hard and we'd go out on Halloween night and maybe even the night before and throw it at people. Throw it at cars. Throw it at houses. It's a horrible thing to do, but that's what we did. And I remember on occasion taking a piece of that corn and putting it in my mouth and eating it. And it was well, it wasn't bad. It was a little dry and stuff, but it was a little sweet too. But it was it was that hard, kind of grainy kind of texture. Well, that's what they were doing here. They were eating that kind of a of a of a grain. And they're walking along and they're kind of meandering their ways through these grain fields. And by the way, the Lord made a, a, a wonderful provision for the traveler in Jesus' day. Back then, they didn't have In-N-Out. They didn't have Burger King. They didn't have Applebee's. You couldn't just pull off the freeway and go grab something to eat. Okay, So if you're going on any lengthy trip, you either had to carry a bunch of stuff or you had to rely on the land. Well, God in Deuteronomy 23-25 says that when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hands, but you shall not use a sickle. 
on your neighbor's standing grain. So God made a provision for these people who were obviously trusting God. I mean, these were disciples. They left everything they had to follow Christ. Didn't take anything with them. And they're out there in the grain field. And God, in his divine providence, allowed them to do what they did here. There was a provision for that in Deuteronomy. And so, as they began to do this, obviously the Pharisees are kind of peeking out behind the, the grain field, probably in the next aisle over. And when they see what happens, um, we see basically the accusation of the Pharisees. Because they're just right behind Jesus and his disciples. And you see that in verse 2. It says, And when the Pharisees saw what they did, they plucked the heads of grain and they ate them. They said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Well, what are they talking about? They had this whole minutia of laws, and one of them was you weren't even allowed to grab a handful of grain and kind of, you know, shuck it and throw it up and get the grain and eat it. You couldn't do that, according to the Pharisees, not according to God's law, because that would be, you know, uh, reaping and harvesting and all that. And it's totally ridiculous. That's not what God's Word said. And so they had this hair-splitting legalism. Absolute insanity for no purpose at all. And they buried God's law under this, their own man-made law so deeply that it was basically unbearable for the people. And remember, God intended this day to be a day of rest, not a day of excruciating hardship. Peter says in Acts 15.10, they bind burdens on the people that are impossible for them to bear. Speaking of the religious leaders. They just weigh the people down. In Matthew 23, 4, Jesus said this, they have laws that are burdensome. I mean, no wonder the people sought rest. I mean, some people think when you commit yourself to Christ and living the Christian life, oh boy, it's so hard, it's such a burden. You don't know anything about a burden until you experience what these people experienced under the Pharisees. They had a tremendous yoke placed upon them. And that's why Christ can come along and say, Hey, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Compared to what you people are putting up with, what I'm calling you to do, not an issue. Not an issue at all. Well, look at the answer that Jesus gives to these Pharisees. Verses 3 to 8. But he said to them, Have you not read? (laughs) Now, I mean, that's just... It's almost, it borders on being rude. He wasn't being rude. But here's a religious leader. And Jesus is telling them, have you not read? I mean, they knew it backwards, forwards, in their sleep, every other way. So when he said, have you not read? I mean, that is just an amazing statement. Jesus is just taking the gloves off and and just letting them know where he's coming from. He even says it again in verse 5. Have you not read the law? Of course they read the law. In verse 7 he says, if you had known what this means, and he goes on to quote a prophet. I mean, he's almost saying, man, you guys need to wake up. You're missing the whole point here. You have to understand that the answer that Jesus gives us here is based on the fact that there was... 
a prohibition against work on the Sabbath, but it was never intended to apply to three categories. It never was intended to apply to the service of God. It never was intended to apply to deeds of necessity or deeds of mercy. So the Sabbath was to bring rest, not hardship, to reflect what the other nine commandments reflected. Love toward God and love toward fellow man. I mean, that's what the Ten Commandments are all about, if you think about it. The Ten Commandments basically talk about a love to God through loyalty, faithfulness, reverence, holiness. The second group talks about our love toward men through respect, purity, unselfishness, truthfulness, contentment. I mean, that's what sums up the Ten Commandments. Right? You shall love the Lord, what? Your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the love to God and love to man. Well, Jesus basically answers them because they were these legalistic people who didn't want anything to do with love. (laughs) They didn't care about love. They just cared about the letter of the law. Forget about the spirit of the law. And Jesus gave them a threefold reply. In verses 3 to 4, he appealed to a king. Look at this. It says, But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? What's he doing? He's, he's appealing to a king. He's appealing to King David. He's appealing to this whole example that David laid down. And he's saying, you know what? When, there's, when it comes to man's necessity, when it comes to the necessity of man dealing with hunger and maybe, maybe medical issues, whatever it might be, the Sabbath has no rule against that. In the case of David, we don't have time to go into the whole thing this morning. 1 Samuel 21, you can read it on your own. He picks out David, which was their hero, you might say. Um, And David was being chased. And he ends up there dealing with a priest. And he says, hey, do you got anything to eat? And the priest says, no, basically we just got this showbread. And David's like, okay. Every week what they would do is they would bake 12 loaves of bread. And each loaf was baked with six and a half pounds of flour. Pretty big loaves. And they were put in two, two piles, six each. And they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And they placed them on the table. And every Sabbath the loaves would be taken away and new ones would be brought in. Well, they couldn't just throw out the old loaves because they, they considered them kind of holy. And so when they were taken away, according to Leviticus 24, they would be eaten by the priests and no one else. And the word showbread literally means the bread of the presence. And it was a representation of God's relationship with his people. And it was to be eaten by the priests alone. It was kind of sacred, you might say. It was holy. Um, A parallel today would be as if you know, you went into a Catholic church and you started drinking the holy water. Okay? That wouldn't be right. They wouldn't like that. Alright? And so it's kind of a, a similar thing. They might get upset at that. But stop and think about it. David and his men ate the showbread. God allowed for that, obviously. Because the priest gave it to him. And David ate it and so did his men. 
And when he says here, have you not read, he's not suggesting that they never read the story. They were very familiar with the story. He's just saying, you haven't grasped the significance of this. You really don't understand what went on there. If, in, in fact, David was right, if he was allowed to eat the showbread by the hand of the priests, and he was a king, then are you telling me that the son of David didn't have the right to eat his father's grain from the field? He's drawing that parallel. In Mark 2.27, Jesus explains it even further. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, sometimes we have a tendency with our Christian lives to get the cart in front of the horse. We get things turned around and changed around. And we have to remember to keep things in their proper place. And so what, what Jesus is saying is, look, David was in need. God looks at someone's need in this situation, and he's willing to bend the rule, you might say. Yeah, the, the showbread was for the priest. The, the, the priest alone was to eat it. That's what it was. But you know what? In that instance, God allowed it to happen. And I think he was truly showing that out of necessity, David needed some food, and that was the only thing he had to eat. I mean, a, a New Testament parallel would be the, the subject of divorce. Does God love divorce? No. God hates divorce. Was it God's intention for people to get married and get divorced? No. It was never his intention. But in certain circumstances, in certain situations, does God allow for divorce? Yes. So he appealed to the king. He also appealed to the priests. He talked about the practice of the priests. He says, wait, wait a minute here. Look at verse, um, uh, verse uh, 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? In other words, look at what the priests do on the Sabbath. I mean, you don't think they're working? They've got to go in and they've got to slaughter animals. They've got to sprinkle blood everywhere. They're lighting fires and incense and all sorts of things. And he's pointing that out to them. He's saying, wait a minute. They're working in the temple. Isn't that considered work? No, God allowed for that. So once again, Jesus is appealing to the spirit of the law. They're running the, the show by the letter of the law. And he's saying that isn't right. Sometimes you hear people talk about Christians who work on Sundays. And sometimes I just wonder where their, where their thinking is. I mean, you know what? In the day and age we live in, we don't have a privilege sometimes to say, oh yeah, I'll take the job, but I don't work weekends. We don't have that privilege. Do you think God allows the grace of God to cover that individual who, who maybe desires to be in church, but you know what? His job demands that he be somewhere else. Do you think that that person is any less holy or any less loved by God? Or No. God's grace covers that. Does that give you an excuse to go out and, and do whatever you want on the Lord's day and not come together in fellowship with the saints? No. Because we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. 
But if you have to work on Sunday, you know what? You got to work on Sunday. It's probably not your ideal choice as a believer, but God understands that. And so he appeals to the priests. Sometimes I want to say, what do you think I do on Sunday? I mean, you know, obviously I don't work. And what this is suggesting is that man's traditions about the Sabbath were wrong. They were contradictory to God's own law. And Jesus clearly pointed that out. And then the last thing here, he appealed to a prophet. Hosea 6, 6, verse 7. Look at what he says. He says, but if you had known what this means, and then he quotes Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He gives us a principle here. Um, He's saying, you know what? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You guys are living by the letter of the law. There's no mercy in that at all. The Sabbath law was given to Israel as a mark of a relationship to God. But it was also an act of mercy. Both for man and beast. It gave them the needed rest that they needed. Any religious law that is contrary to mercy and the care of nature should be looked on with suspicion. God wants us to be a merciful people. He wants us to be a gracious people, not religious sacrifice. He wants love. He doesn't want legalism. And we have to be careful because sometimes those of us in the church, we can get pretty legalistic on things. And that's not really showing the love of Christ to a lost and dying world, if you ask me. The Pharisees who sacrificed to obey their Sabbath laws thought they were serving God. When they accused Christ and disciples, they thought they were defending God. That's what they thought. Kind of like the religious legalists of today. They think they're doing the right thing. It's interesting how Jesus appealed to a prophet, a priest, and a king for he is a prophet, a priest, and a king. And he also points out in Matthew 12 that he's greater than those. In Matthew 12, 6, he says he's greater than the temple. As a priest, he's greater than the temple. As a prophet, he's greater than Jonah. He says that in verse 41 of Matthew 12. And as a king, he's even greater than Solomon. Verse 42. He's declaring himself, beloved, as the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus was actually affirming his equality with God here. For God had established the Sabbath. We'll continue the rest of the the message next week. But I want to ask you, as we close, what's, what's the lesson in all this? Okay, so we learned a little bit about the Sabbath. We learned a little bit about the Lord's Day. See, today there are people, even today, that are caught up in systems of religion. They're trying to do their own works. They're trying to do, to accomplish something that God has already accomplished. Just like the Pharisees did. They come up with rule after rule after rule. There's no biblical basis for the rules. They just like to have rules. 
you're trying to keep the law as a Jew, or if you're trying to keep the law of the Mormons, or the Jehovah Witnesses, or the Roman Catholic Church, or wherever your little religious establishment is, you have to stop and you have to look at your heart, and you have to ask yourself, am I ever going to get there? Because you're not. You don't get anywhere by trying to keep the law. The law was given us to us not to keep, but to point us in the direction of a Savior. Because when we look at the law, we realize no man could ever keep this stuff. It shows us our own inability to raise the standard to the righteousness that God demands. And that's when we fall on our knees and we come to God and we ask him, Lord, save me. I can't do this on my own. Second thing is to Christians. I just want to ask you, why do you come here every week? Why do you come here on Sundays? Do you come here to worship? What's your purpose? Are you here because it's functional? Are you here because maybe you feel it's your duty? you just cranking it out week after week. Got to go to church. Sunday, just go to church. Paul said this, having begun in the spirit, are you going to be perfected in the flesh? The answer obviously is no. you defining true spirituality in terms of a bunch of little things that you do or you don't do? Or maybe you're looking out and judging others according to that standard. Is your relationship to God just pure function? Rules, laws, things that you can do, things that you can't do? God's law will never stand in the way of meeting others' needs. God's law will never stand in the way of serving God. God's law will never stand in the way of showing mercy. Because it really violates the very heart of God. So you have to ask yourself, Christians, if you're so legalistic about some things, you're going to literally alienate people from Christ, not draw him, draw them to him. Are you trapped in your life by a bunch of rules and regulations? I hope not. Because the life in Christ is not about a bunch of rules and regulations. The life in Christ is about a freedom to worship him in spirit and truth. To count it as a privilege to come together with the body of Christ. Not just on Sundays, but when we gather together anytime. We should be excited to do that. Because God is there in our midst, working in our hearts. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we pray that you would minister your grace to our hearts. Lord, we thank you that we have a little deeper understanding of what the Sabbath is and what the Lord's Day is. And Father, we thank you that you did not call us to come to church just out of duty or out of regulation or out of fear of punishment, but you really gave us the opportunity to come here to worship you in spirit and truth. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would do your work in the hearts of those who are gathered here. If there's any here who have yet to cry out to you to be saved, I pray that you would work in their heart this morning, that you would draw them, that you would show them that their life of toil trying to live a life that hopefully one day will be pleasing to you is all for naught because you'll never arrive on that day. The only way you'll get there is by falling on your knees and confessing Christ, confessing your need of a Savior. 
Some people say, well, Christianity is just a crutch. Well, you know what? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and we all need one. We all need a Savior. Because the Bible said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Father, we thank you for your message this morning. Pray you apply it to our hearts. Dismiss us with your blessing after this song. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said.